Welcome and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. Well, good morning, City Bridge. How are we doing? Welcome to 2024. How are we feeling about the new year? Yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. Seven days in, I haven't put it in a ditch yet, so feeling good. Hey, welcome uh, this morning. Glad to be with you. If I've not met you, my name is David Leventhal. It's great to see you in person. Those of us joining online, maybe from home or from the car on a road trip, or maybe you're even in a deer blind enjoying the last little bit of hunting season. We're, we're glad you're joining us. I'm going to read you a letter. I'm going to put it up here on the screen. This is a letter that I received 35 years ago. <clears throat> I'm going to read it to you. August 4th, 88, Thursday, 11.15 a.m. Dear David, hi, son. How are things going for you at camp? I'm praying daily for your time there. We are just over the halfway point at Camp Shoshana with a little over one week left to go before Tim and I head home. Camp is full up and I'm extremely busy teaching, discipling, and counseling. Everyone is asking about you. I've been showing them pictures from Jacksonville, Florida that we took this summer. Tim says hi, as do Tara and Kirsten. They all want to know when you're going to be back at camp. The weather has been terribly hot up here with some rain from time to time. Mom and I are laying out the plans to pick you guys up from camp. We were really excited about to be at the closing ceremonies, knowing that you guys will be at your best. We'll see you all around Friday, August 19th. I know the athletic part of camp is going well for you, hopefully without injuries. What sports are you enjoying most? I trust you have some great roommates from different parts of the country and that your counselors are really great guys too. One thing to remember, son, the Lord brought you up there and he's got some marvelous things to teach you and to mold into your life. Don't miss out on his best for you this year at Kanakuk. Listen, learn, absorb, embrace his word and truth. I'm praying for you every day. I really love and miss you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See you soon, son of my heart. Love, Dad, 2 Corinthians 3, 5. P.S. I sent Katie a little booklet entitled, My Heart, Christ's Home. Ask her if you can read it when she is finished reading it. It really is great. Love you, Dad. Now, I want you to pretend for a moment that it's 2,000 years in the future. The year is 4,024. And you're part of uh, an archaeological team sent to come do an archaeological dig in, dig in Texas, in, in Collin County, in Murphy, because why not? And on this dig, you find this letter that I just read to you. And you have been tasked with figuring out, what does this letter mean? What, tell me all I can learn about this person and this place. If you were going to do that, you would have to ask a lot of questions. You have to answer a lot of questions to really understand what was going on. Some of the questions you might have to figure out is one is it's written in English and that's not your native language. So you got to figure out how to translate it into your, into your vernacular. When was it written? I mean, it was dated 8-4-88, but we don't know what century. Was it 1788, 1888, 1988? Who is this guy, David? And he, where is this camp he's at? And why is camp spelled with a K? What kind of sports was he doing? The dad said that he was at some place called Camp Shoshana. Where was that camp located? What kind of things was the dad teaching? The letter mentions five other people. It mentions mom, Tim, Katie, Tara, and Kirsten. Who are these people? Friends, siblings, cousins, 
aunts, uncles? You would have to ask and answer those plus a thousand other questions if you really wanted to understand what was going on in and around uh, Murphy, Texas when that letter came through. Why do I start there? Because as Kyle mentioned, we're kicking off a 10-week series uh, studying the letter to the church in Colossae. And our task is not too dissimilar from what I just described. When you study a book of the Bible, a letter, your task is to try and put yourself in the, in the shoes of those who would have gotten that letter to understand. We've got to ask. We've got to answer a bunch of questions to really understand what was going on in that time. Colossians is an amazing little letter, four chapters long. You can read it in about 13 minutes. And I would encourage you, read it daily. It's a short little letter. But in these four chapters, in this short little segment of scripture, we find some of our key, some of our very key New Testament themes, like about Jesus Christ. We're gonna learn that he's the image of the invisible God, that all things were created through him and for him, that in him all things hold together, that Jesus Christ is the head of the body of the church, and that in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. We're gonna learn about our position in Christ, that we've been raised with Christ, that we have died with him and that our life is hidden with Christ in God. And we're gonna learn about the way of life through Christ. Paul's gonna say in Colossians 2, 6 and 7, therefore, as you receive Jesus, uh, Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up and established in the faith, just as you are taught abounding in thanksgiving. That, by the way, is our key verse of the whole letter. That's your key verse. We're gonna be told to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, to walk in wisdom towards outsiders, to let our speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that we know how to answer each person. In fact, the theme of Colossians, I'm gonna give you the punchline up front, is the sufficiency of Christ. It's seeing him clearly, it's being included in him completely, and it's walking in him freely. And I hope, I think the Lord hopes that as we work our way over the next 10 weeks, through this little letter that we would step off the treadmill that some of us find ourselves on in early 2024 of trying to impress God by our discipline, by our service or our sacrifice. I think God wants us to rest in him. So today, rather than focus on a specific set of verses is what what we'll do in the nine weeks that follow this week, we're gonna do a high level overview of the entire letter to the Colossians. Why am I gonna spend a whole week? Why are we spending a week on this? Because One of the key principles in your Bible study is that the parts only make sense in light of the whole. Say it with me. The parts only make sense in light of the whole. The parts only make sense in light of the whole. And so if you don't have at least a rudimentary understanding of the whole, then the parts are gonna be confusing and worse. You're gonna be able to, you might take those parts and make them say things that they don't mean to say in light of the whole context. So what is context? Very quickly. When I talk about context, when understanding the context of your scripture, I'm referring to a couple of things. One is the cultural context. What was going on? What were the events happening at the time that the letter was written? Are there wars, famines, um, kings, uh, natural disaster? And so if you were tasked with, go back to our illustration, it's 2000 years in the future, and you've been tasked with studying and documenting U.S. American history in the year following the tax on, uh, on, America, on 9-11-2001. So your task, document the U.S. history in the year following 9-11. We'll use that as our sort of example of what does context mean. If that was your task, then you would certainly need to understand that on September 11, 2001, America was attacked by terrorists from Al-Qaeda. 
and that they flew two planes into the two towers in New York, one into the Pentagon, and then one uh, was taken down in a field in Pennsylvania. That's part of the historical context. Might help you to know that President Bush was in office. You would want to understand cultural context, historical cultural context. What were the traditions and the habits? What were the things that were special to that culture? You might discover in your research that when Americans after this, when they went to go fly on an airplane, they had to take their shoes off, laptops out of the bag. They couldn't take water through the, uh, through the security any longer. You would discover that those traditions, those laws stirred up out of the, uh, the historical context. You would need to know your geographical, geographical context, geographical context. Where's New York City? Where's Washington, D.C.? Where's Pennsylvania? Where's Saudi Arabia? Where's Pakistan? Where's Lebanon? You would need to understand the literary context. As you unpacked and did research, you might come across a military briefing uh, from that time. You might also come across a letter from a, or a journal entry from a, a widow who had lost a spouse in the, in the attacks. And those two documents would read very, very differently. And it would serve you well to know the difference between a brief and a journal entry as you seek to explore. That's your genre, and it's really important. And all this is hard work. It takes time, it takes planning, it takes effort. It doesn't happen by accident, but it's really important because as we get to know the context, we are less likely, we are less likely to, to take Scripture out of context and to make Scripture say things that God never intended for it to say. Let me give you a quick example. Uh, as we start 2024 off, most of us are hoping God's going to give us just the best year ever. And we're going to Jeremiah 29 because we know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. Plans to give you a future and a hope. And you're, you're, you've got that in your coffee mug and you're ready Monday morning for work. But when you understand what was going on when Jeremiah wrote that, specifically in the first 10 verses of 29, you realize that's not about getting through Monday. That was written to Jews who had been disobedient to the covenant law of God. And God said, if you disobey me, you will be disciplined. And that discipline will ratchet its way up, leading to being kicked out of the land. And so when Jeremiah wrote this, the Israelites were being attacked and besieged by the Babylonians. And it wasn't just that the Babylonians gently escorted them from their home to Babylon. No, they seized Jerusalem. They starved the people to death. They finally breached the wall of the city. They went pouring in, massacring people. They found King Zedekiah. They found all of his sons. They slaughtered his sons in front of him. And then they gouged out his eyes. So that would be the last thing that he saw. And then they drug him to Babylon. And when, when the Israelites got to Babylon, God told them in Jeremiah, people are gonna tell you, false prophets are gonna tell you, hang in there, this will be quick. And God says, don't listen to him. You're gonna be there for 70 years. So get comfortable. But... After seven decades, I will bring you back into the land that I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's the context of Jeremiah 29. It's not about making it through the work week, okay? And is it true that God knows the plans? Of course he does. Is it true that God wants to bless your week? Sure he does. It's just not true right there. Okay, and we can get into real trouble. That's sort of a little bit of a silly illustration, but we can get into real trouble when we start building doctrines and practices and habits off of bad doctrine taken out of context. So this is really important. And look, I'm kind of a dork when it comes to this stuff. I love this stuff and the weeds. And, and I realize that the way I'm wired, I, this stuff makes me super excited, but it is important. And you don't, we don't have to be experts, but we ought to move in the direction of understanding scripture as a whole. And... We need to do it with humility. None of us has the corner on the market of knowledge of biblical scripture. 
We all, no matter how hard we try, we're all going to come to the Bible with our own preconceived ideas, with our own background, baggage, and junk, and try as we might to strip that stuff out and to ask God, just show me what's in the text. We're going to add stuff to it from our own background. We just can't help it. And so we come at it with a huge measure of humility. We do not have the final compendium of biblical knowledge. And we also don't study context for context's sake. Okay? As we do this study, it's meant to draw us in to better know and understand the love of God for us. We'll come back to that later on this morning. Okay? Everybody tracking with me? Okay. I thought the way we would attack the letter is kind of with the old who, what, when, where, why method, because that's super fun. So we'll go through that and we'll look at the letter as a whole. So the who. Who wrote the letter to the church in Colossae? Well, verse one, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. So this letter was written by the apostle Paul. The one time persecuted the church, became an apostle when he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. It changed his life. He authored 13 of your 27 New Testament letters. And so he wrote the letter to the to church in Colossae, but not just Paul, he had help. He had help from a guy named Timothy. Timothy, uh, we know from Acts 16, came to trust in Jesus when Paul was in Lystra. And Timothy became a valued a member of Paul's team. In fact, Timothy and Paul were thick as thieves. And Timothy is credited for co-writing six of Paul's letters. Six of Paul's letters. So that's who wrote the letter, Paul, and co-authored by Timothy. Well, where and to whom was the letter going? Verse two, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. This letter was written to believers in a place called Colossae. But it wasn't just meant for believers in Colossae, because Paul tells us later on in Colossians 4, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see to it that you read the letter from, the, from Laodicea. So this was called a circular letter. It was meant to go to the church in Colossae, and then they were meant to pass it off to a place called Laodicea. Now, I'm a visual guy, and I love maps. I mean, if you don't have a good atlas, what are we even doing? So most of us are not familiar with where Colossae is. So let me help you. I've got a series of maps just to show you where in the world we're talking about. Okay, so this is, everybody knows where Italy is. It's the boot, right? I thought I'd include that as a place marker. So go to Italy and go right. You see, you've got modern day Greece, modern day Bulgaria, and modern day Turkey. That little dotted line represents what used to be called Asia Minor. And right there in the middle of where modern day Turkey is, is you see Colossae. So go to Italy and keep going right and you end up in Colossae. If you go a little bit tighter in the next slide, we'll see that uh, there are three towns mentioned in this letter. Colossae, Laodicea, which I've already mentioned, and a town called Hierapolis. If you go a little bit tighter in, you see that these three towns sort of formed the metroplex, if you will, of the Lycus Valley. There's a Lycus River running there east to west, and you can see that Colossae and Hierapolis and Laodicea were sister cities. They were all relatively close together. And so when we know what we know about that area, about the area of the Lycus Valley is that it was not a major city. This wasn't like Ephesus or Corinth or Jerusalem. Uh, Colossae wasn't a huge hub. Now it had been a couple hundred years prior, but by the time Paul rolls around, it was just a city, just a good sized ancient Near East city, okay? And we know that Paul mentions those three, those three towns, Colossae, Laodicea, and Heropolis. We do know that there was a substantial Jewish minority in the Lycus Valley. And I could totally dorky out down the rabbit hole for why we know that, but I won't. But just trust me that we know from hundreds of years before that Jews had been moved into that area. And so those three towns had a substantial Jewish minority, okay? What do we know about the church in Colossae? Well, we do know that Paul had never met these people, okay? Paul had never been to Colossae. 
He was writing a letter to a group of people that he had not met face to face. So how did they hear, how did they hear about the gospel? Well, when Paul was in Ephesus, Paul spent two years in Ephesus. And we do know from Acts that Paul went throughout all of Asia using Ephesus as his hub. And so Paul sent his homies to the different cities and towns around Ephesus. And the guy that he tasked to go to Colossae was a guy named Epaphras, who happened to have been a native of Colossae. It would be like, hey, I want you to go share the gospel in Texas. You're not gonna send a guy from Boston down here. You need a Texan because we're a little different. And so Paul says, hey, who's most equipped to go to Colossae? Epaphras. So he sends Epaphras. Epaphras starts in the synagogue because that was Paul's habit. Synagogue first, share the gospel message with the Jews that Jesus is the promised Messiah that has fulfilled all the law and the prophets and the, and the writings. And he is the promised Messiah. Paul always starts in the synagogues. And then from the synagogues, he works its way out. And so we know, you can imagine that this church in Colossae, this average town, a couple of house churches made up of uh, Jews who had come to trust that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, you're gonna see in the letter that Paul's referring to people who had come from a pagan idolatrous background. And so you've got this big, this, no, it's not really big, this mix of people coming together under the name of Jesus. So that's who it was going to. We feeling good about Colossae? Feeling good about maps? All right. Okay, when was the letter written and where was it written from? Okay, we know that Paul wrote this letter from prison because he tells us, he mentions that three times in chapter four that he's writing this from prison. But here's the skinny. Paul was a repeat offender. Paul spent a lot of time in prison. And so if you wanna understand the when of this letter was written, you gotta figure out which prison, which imprisonment did Paul write it from? And I could take you way down deep into the rabbit hole. And it's super interesting. But I have been exhorted not to do that this morning. So we're not gonna do that. But at a very high level, we know that Paul was arrested in Philippi. He and Silas, remember they were singing and there was an earthquake. They got out, that was a quick imprisonment. He couldn't have written it then. Many scholars believe that there is a hypothetical imprisonment in Ephesus. So when Paul was in Ephesus for two years doing his ministry, many believe that there was an imprisonment not recorded in scripture and that that was the place that he wrote the prison epistles, uh, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, he, that he wrote them from uh, Ephesus, okay? Paul was arrested in Jerusalem for starting a riot for sharing the gospel. And that arrest in Jerusalem uh, led him to a two-year house arrest in Caesarea. That's Acts 24 to 27. So two years under house arrest in Caesarea. And then after that, Paul appeals to go to Caesar because he realizes he's still in trouble. And that appeal to Caesar leads him to another two-year imprisonment in Rome. And we call that Paul's first Roman imprisonment. Why do we call it Paul's first Roman imprisonment? Because there was a second Roman imprisonment. So Paul's under house arrest for two years and then he gets out. And then we learn in 2 Timothy, which is the last letter that Paul wrote before he was killed, we believe, is that he is in a Roman dungeon, no longer under house arrest. He's been rearrested and is in a Roman dungeon and everybody's abandoned him. And he's uh, writing to Timothy, his, sort of his last will and testament. So which one, okay? Without going way down the rabbit hole, the traditional view and the one that I think makes the most sense, although it doesn't answer all the questions perfectly, is that Paul wrote the prison epistles, including Colossians, from his first Roman imprisonment when he was in a two-year house in, uh, arrest in Rome, Okay. If you're like, you want to know more, I'll let you buy me a cup of coffee and we'll dork out. It'll be awesome. Okay. Why did Paul write this letter? Let's get to the meat. Okay, great. I know who, I know where, I know where, uh, uh, when-ish. Why? What was the cause? What was the reason? What was the problem Paul was trying to get out in front of? 
As we answer that question, I think it's really helpful to look at the tone of the letter to the church. Colossians has a nice sort of relaxed tone to it. Paul opens the letter in chapter one. He, He says, we thank God for you believers, for your faith, that you have love for all the saints, that you're bearing fruit and the world is taking notice of it. He's gonna see in chapter two, he says, we see your good order and your firmness of faith in Christ. So the tone of the letter doesn't seem to indicate that the walls are on fire at the church. Whereas if you look at a letter like Galatians, Paul comes out of the gate hot. He's like, I am so astonished, this is Galatians 1, that you're so quickly deserting him who called you to the grace of God. If, if, if an angel from heaven were to preach to you a different gospel, let him be accursed. He says that twice. He says in chapter three, you call them foolish Galatians. Chapter four, how can you turn back again? He says in chapter four, I'm afraid I may have labored in vain. And listen, Paul was not afraid to go hard on false teachers and to name names. See also 2 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 13, 2 Corinthians 20, Philippians 3. Okay, Paul was not afraid to go hard at false teachers. And he doesn't seem to do that with the church in Colossae. The tone is pretty relaxed. The walls are not on fire in Colossae. Okay, so... What was he trying to give them a heads up on? What was, the, what was the thing to be aware of? And that's where it's really hard to tell. One commentator wrote that the prescription for the cure, the prescription for cure comes across reasonably clearly to the present day reader of Colossians. The ailment, however, defies a really detailed diagnosis on his part. Another commentator in 1973 Looked at, tried to look at all the 19th and century, uh, 20th century commentators to figure out what are all the options that people say there are. And he came up with a list that was 44 deep of potential things. So we're going to start in one and we're going to work our way through all 44. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do it. That said, it's really difficult to know exactly what the issues were in the air in the Lycus Valley. Okay. That said, if you, if you look at the options, they sort of fall into three big buckets. I'll very quickly go over the three of them. I'll tell you which one I think makes the most sense. First bucket is that it was, Paul was addressing an early version of Gnosticism. Now we know that full-blown Gnosticism didn't come into effect until decades later. But the idea of Gnosticism is that there's a secret, mysterious knowledge. You gotta, you gotta have the inside scoop to really understand knowledge. And that there was this distinction between the base earth, the flesh, the human body, and the sacred spiritual realm. And the idea was to get rid of all this nonsense down here and to achieve a higher spiritual fullness through secret, mysterious knowledge. That's Gnosticism. And so some people think that what was going on in the waters of the Lycus Valley was an early version of this. And Paul wanted to write them and say, hey, heads up, beware. This is out there, and here's how you respond to it. The second option, second option is that it was a combination of a lot of different things. We call that synchronism, you mixing it all together. You got a little bit of Phrygian folklore, some local Jewish folklore, you mix in some Christianity with it, and voila, you've got this philosophy. And boy, we have that going on today, do we not? You take a little bit of Oprah, you take a little bit of Taylor Swift, you take a little bit of your favorite podcaster, you mix in some city bridge teaching every now and again, and you come up with whatever you think makes the most sense for your life, and this is your spirituality. Synchronism, I'm mixing it. Some people think that's what was going on in, uh, in, in Colossae. Uh, and both of those have their pros and cons. And again, without sucking you down the rabbit hole, I think those are good options. But I think the option that makes the most sense, that seems to check the most boxes, is that there was within the, the church community, within the church and then more broadly, Jewish elements that were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, but were saying, hey, in addition to Jesus, 
If you really want to understand and you really want to experience the fullness of God, you've got to tack on some additional elements from the law to really move yourself into a place of real fullness. And so we're going to see in the letter, Paul's going to mention circumcision in Colossians 2, very Jewish, observance of the Sabbath. He's going to talk about food and purity rules. He's going to address the issue of Jew versus Gentile. Okay. And so that's kind of what I think makes the most sense is that this was a Jewish element that was trying to say, hey, we think that a greater spiritual maturity, deeper access to the fullness of God can be attained by ascetic, by, by harsh treatment of the body and by practices contained in the law. So that's what I think makes the most sense. But am I positive? No. Am I betting my firstborn kid on it? No, probably not. So um, what we, I don't think it, again, to be clear, I don't think this was an issue of the core gospel message because I think if it had been, Paul would have come as strong to the church in Colossae as he did to the church in Galatia and as he did to the false teachers in Corinth. Does that make sense? Everybody tracking with me? Okay, so what were some of the characteristics of this false teaching? I'm glad you asked. There's 10 observations we can get from the meat of this letter that talks about this. The false teaching was built on a philosophy of empty deceit. It was according to human tradition. It was according to the elemental spiritual forces of the world and not of Christ. The false teachers were advocating observance of certain food restrictions and certain Jewish holy days. The false teachers practiced an ascetic or strict discipline. They were worshiping angels, maybe a little Jewish mysticism in there. They made a great deal about visions they'd seen. Paul says these teachers were proud. They were puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. Notice his sensuous mind. That's a singular his. So it seems like Paul maybe is thinking about an individual that is, is puffed up. The false teachers are losing their connection with the head, the body of Christ, which is another indication of within the church. They were once attached, and now they're kind of moving away from that. And the false teachers were peddling various rules, which Paul regarded as worldly um, as means of spiritual growth. So again, pull it all together. And here's what I think was going on is that there was message was that a greater spiritual maturity and deeper access to the fullness of God could be obtained by adhering to, uh, to self, treat, uh, harsh treatment of the body and by observing things in the law. Does that make sense? That's what I think is going on. And we're gonna unpack all of this in detail over the next nine weeks. So Paul pens this letter to these people he's never met before. What's his purpose? Three purposes. One, Paul wants to remind the believers in Colossae of the uniqueness, the fullness, and the deity of Christ. He wants to remind them of who Jesus is. Two, he wants to encourage the believers in Colossae to enjoy the spiritual freedom that can be experienced by all who are reconciled to Christ. Spiritual freedom. Encourage them in their spiritual freedom. And three, he wants to exhort these believers to live out in the perfection of Christ's redemptive and reconciling work, which Jesus accomplished on the cross. That's why he wrote this letter, to remind, to encourage, and to exhort, okay? And when he does that, he's gonna be pushing the theme of the all-sufficiency of Christ. We see him clearly, we're included in him completely, and we walk with him freely. And the way Paul goes about this, the argument that he uses through the letter has two premises that lead to a conclusion. Premise number one in Paul's letter, all the fullness of God is embodied in Christ. All the fullness of God is embodied in Christ. John 14, this is what Jesus talked about. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, 
Show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I not been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show me the Father? See also Hebrews 1, John 1, and 2 Corinthians 4. To look at Jesus is to see God. It's so easy for us to get knotted up on trying to figure out who is God. And we end up often at one of two ends of the pole. Either God is just an angry, bitter old man who's just concerned about my behavior, or God is sort of our senile grandfather who's not super in touch with life. And you kind of got to keep him happy by telling him stories of the old days. We fall into those spectrums. And I don't know what your 2024 has in it, but I encourage you, include time in the gospels. To see Jesus is to see the Father. To see Jesus, we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Dive in deep to the gospels. The more you see how Jesus interacts with the poor and the broken and the downcast, the more you see how Jesus interacts with the Pharisees, the religious elite who are prideful, those people who are oppressing God's people, the way you see that Jesus interacts with his disciples who sometimes feel like, ah, they're just not tracking with me. The way you see how Jesus interacts with all those people is gonna give you a picture of what is the father like? Because to see Jesus is to see the father. When you look at Jesus, you're looking at the one in whom hidden are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. To look at Jesus is to see God. That's premise number one. Premise number one, all the fullness of God is embodied in Christ. Premise number two, to be united in Christ is to have direct access to God and all his fullness. To be united in Christ is to have direct access to God and all his fullness. This is a little bit of what Jesus was referring to in John 14 when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. When you come through Jesus, you get access to the Father, full access. See also Romans 5, Ephesians 2, Hebrews 4. Full acceptance, full access. To know Christ is to have the Father. To be accepted by the Son is to be accepted by the Father. God does not have a JV team and a varsity team, okay? To know Jesus is to have full access to the Father. Does that make sense? That's his second premise. And those two premises, premise I, premise E, those two items lead to a conclusion. Therefore, there is no need to submit yourself to unnecessary rules or ascetic harsh treatment of your body. If premise number one is true, and we believe it's true, if premise number two is true, and we believe it's true, then the conclusion is that there is no need to submit yourself to unnecessary rules or ascetic treatment of the body. This is what Paul talks about in Colossians 2, which we will unpack in great detail when we get to it. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why... As though you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teaching. I mean, these indeed, they have an appearance of wisdom in, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. See also Acts 10, 1 Corinthians 8, Galatians 5. In Christ we are free. Some of us still feel like we have got to keep churning and keep working and keep achieving and keep doing so that God will realize like, hey, I really do take this seriously. And I want you to know, God, that I'm on your team. 
And I want to, I'll do these things because I want you to, 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 to show me yourself and to give me more of yourself. I mean, just last night as I was tying up loose ends for this message, the thought crossed my mind last night. It's like, Lev, you have not prayed enough for this sermon. And I was like, so what, what, what was my next thought? Well, dude, you better double down. You got like six hours to, to, to petty to God so that he'll understand that you're taking him seriously and that he'll, he'll give you more of himself for this message. It just, it, I don't even realize it. I'm breathing it in. I don't even realize it. We all do this. We're all in this performance thing where it's just like, I got to do more so I can experience more of God. And it's exhausting. And in Christ, we're free. In Christ, we're free. And we're going to unpack that over the next nine weeks. Jesus Christ is all sufficient. He's enough for every believer's need at the first century church in Colossae. And he's enough for every one of our needs in Collin County in 2024. Therefore, we do not need to submit ourselves to unnecessary rules or ascetic treatment of the body. Now listen, Paul's gonna tell you, if you know Jesus, then people who know Jesus and who have access to the Father, they live life differently than those people who do not. And Paul's gonna tell you, he's gonna show us in Colossians, what does that look like? What does it look like for a person who has been redeemed to live a life in full devotion to Jesus? And we're gonna talk about that. Now look, I don't know, I mean, I'm not certainly being tapped on the shoulder to add more Jewish practices to my life. Uh, maybe you are, and if so, that's weird. But I do know, I have stuff all the time around me from the outside, and I've got my own heart that's telling me, you gotta do more. You gotta do more. If you want fullness, you gotta do more. And Colossians is gonna help us get over that, that hiccup, okay? Last thing as I begin to land the plane is that we do this together. I wanna show you a picture of Colossians. This is the whole letter to the church in Colossians, uh, Colossi. And I want you to notice anything that is blue is the word you. Paul uses the word you 56 times in Colossians, okay? If it's in blue, that's the plural version of you. That's y'all. We call that y'all in Texas, okay? Blue is plural. Green is the singular version of you. The problem is there is no green. All 56 times Paul says you, he's not talking to you. He's talking to y'all, to the church in Colossae. See, this is a team sport. Studying God's word, living out the faith. We don't do this in isolation. Let me just tell you something. If there is one guy in the sanctuary who thinks me and Jesus, just the two of us is appealing, it's me. I'll tell you, there's been a lot of times in the last couple of years when I've thought, I don't need any of you people. You just give me Jesus, me and my Bible, and I'll be fine. But the truth is, that's not the truth. I need you. Even when I don't want you, I need you. And so when Paul writes this letter to this church, he's not addressing any one individual. He's addressing the church. We study scripture together. We live scripture out together. We do this together. Second person, plural, y'all. So for the next nine weeks, y'all, we're all gonna do this together. We're gonna be reminded of Jesus, the one in whom all the fullness of God is embodied. We're gonna remind each other of what Jesus has done, that he has united us to himself and given us direct access to God and all of God's fullness. And we're gonna remind each other how we're to respond to that, that we live in freedom 
Because through Christ, there's no need to submit ourselves to unnecessary rules or ascetic treatment of the body. Okay? Lastly, this letter I read at the beginning that my dad wrote me 35 years ago. I mean, I, I could read this letter and I could view this letter as a list of things and statistics and data that he had, he had one week left at his camp in Shoshana. By the way, anybody been to Camp Shoshana? Nobody? Keysville, New York? Nobody? All right. I could read that he was teaching and counseling others, that the weather was hot. I could be laid as a task. I'm going to see him on August uh, 19th, that he wanted me to read some book to get from my sister. I could read that letter this way. I really could. But you know what? If I did that, I'd be missing the whole point of the letter, which was this. David, I love you. I can't wait to see you. I'm praying for you every day. That was the point of my dad's letter. It wasn't about the, the weather in Keysville, New York in August of 1988. The heart of the letter was, dude, I love you. I can't wait to be with you. You are the son of my heart, is what he called me. That's the point of the letter. And we can read Colossians as a list of data. We can read Colossians as a list of things to do. We can read Colossians as... Uh, just some information and we would be missing the whole point of the letter which is that God loves you God loves these people in the first century in Colossae and this letter in Colossians wasn't written to us we are not first century believers in Asia Minor but it was written for us okay it was written for us today that we might live in the fullness of of God as expressed in the deity of Jesus Christ. And to, to, to read that letter and to um, extract from it the heart of the letter, which is God loves you. And you may have never come to know who this Jesus the Messiah is. You may have walked in here this morning and somebody dr drag you here, or you're watching online and you stumbled upon here through the Google machine. And you may never have heard that you are broken and in desperate need of help and you can't do it on your own. You will never bridge the gap. You want fullness to God? You want access to God? You think you're gonna earn it? The Bible says it's crazy. You can't earn your way. You're not gonna get fullness to God except through Jesus Christ, the carpenter who wasn't just a carpenter. He was the one in whom all the fullness of deity dwelled bodily. And he lived a perfect life. And he went to a cross after getting strung through a kangaroo court, being betrayed by his friends, being left alone. And he died on a cross for my sins, for your sins, for the sins of the Jews in the church in Colossae, for the sins of the pagan idolaters at the church of Colossae, for the sins of the people who didn't know up from down in the church in Colossae. And then he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead three days later. And if you don't know Jesus, then you're in a heap of trouble because you're going to stand before God one day with nothing to say except your little handful of garbage. Here's what I did. I gave some money away or I was generally a good person and you're going to be in a heap of trouble. But if you know Jesus, if you will accept the free gift of God as offered through Jesus, then you're going to stand before God like, I got nothing. I got nothing except your son. And God's going to say, that's all you need is Jesus. You got Jesus, you got full access 
welcome in. So we're going to study this together for the next 10 weeks, next nine weeks. And we're going to pray. I'm going to ask you to pray for the series, for one another, for the teachers, that we would get from this letter the things that the Lord wants us to get wherever we are in your journey. Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. To learn about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at citybridgecc. See you next time.